Hi, this is Kristen Regal. And this is Paul Rock. And welcome to the Common Room Podcast. Um, every Sunday at 1045, we gather together to talk about life and spirituality, about the common experiences we share, as well as some of the questions we wrestle with. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope to see you some Sunday at 1045. We have talked about the, the blessings of, of water and of washing in the water and the way the Spirit works there. We've talked about air and breath. Um, and this Sunday, we are, uh, we are moving on to talking about creatures and animals and all the ways that God uh, teaches us uh, and speaks to us. Uh, and we can learn from uh, our fellow creatures on this planet that we share. Uh, and, to, uh, and to lead us in that conversation, I am very, very thankful that a, uh, a colleague and uh, kind of my boss, I guess, but she's also become a friend, uh, the interim executive presbyter, Heartland Presbytery, and, uh, Presbytery is here to, uh, to share with us. And uh, I'll let Dee introduce herself a little bit, but she comes um, not only as a trained theologian, but also as a lover of animals and someone who has led many excursions uh, with others to help teach them. And, uh, and learn herself what it is that creation and uh, creatures can teach us and what God can uh, reveal to us about God's self through, through animals. So welcome, Dee. We're so glad you're here. Thank you, Paul. And actually, you're my boss. So okay, great. Right. Yeah, okay, yeah. good, so good. So, so do a good job. Yeah. <laughs> uh, friends, our first reading this morning is uh, from Genesis. And it's a familiar narrative to many. Oh, thank you. I forgot that. You're welcome. So Genesis 7, 1 through 5. Let me make sure I... Oh, great. Thank you. Thank you. So as we turn to this uh, scripture passage, may we hear God's word. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, its male and its mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and its mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the air also, male and female, to keep their kind alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and for 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. May God bless us in the reading of God's word. So there it is. You know it's happening in your head, even as you hear the narrative. I'm wondering, Mark, if we can start hearing just a little bit of that melody. Um, So let's just get this out of the way. You can go a lot faster if you can. Now, I've inserted either a subliminal message that's an endless loop in your heads now for the rest of the day, or it's a great new hand-washing song that you can use. But indeed, when we think of the text in Noah, many times what we think of is that song. And I want to invite us into a different perspective today. In fact, I would ask that you do a little guided imagery with me at this time. 
you're at your home, you're feeling comfortable. If you want to close your eyes, you can. I have this great image on the screen of a, a wonderful historical uh, painting of Noah's Ark. But imagine yourself on that ark. Imagine yourself standing on that huge ship right at the plank where all the animals are making their way through. And you're standing next to Noah. And so you're standing next to Noah on that plank in the ark. And you're watching the animals come on. And I would imagine Noah is a man of great stature. I tend to think of him as a very strong man, long beard, and you're standing there. And as you're watching the animals come on two by two, all of a sudden you notice, hmm, I haven't seen blank. I haven't seen certain animals. And before you blurt out to Noah to alert him you have not seen those animals, you kind of take a moment to stop and think, maybe they don't need to be on the ark. Maybe it's okay if we leave them behind. So I would invite you at this moment to come back into our space to think clearly about what animals would you have preferred that Noah left behind or forgot about? Or that you figure we could have really done without them after this time. And start putting that in your Facebook post feed. I'm wondering for those here, what animals would you think we could have probably done without during this time? Wood ticks. Wood ticks. Mm -hmm. Mosquitoes. Mosquitoes. That was number one on mine too. It's a state bird in Minnesota. Yes. Billionaires. What about spiders? Some people have issues with spiders or flies. Are any popping up? Mosquitoes. Slugs. 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 Mm. Oh my goodness. Gnats. Gnats. Spiders. Roaches. Skunks. Skunks. <laughs> Crocodiles. Crocodiles. <laughs> Squirrels? squirrels? No. Samantha, you'd leave off squirrels. <laughs> and my friends would say I would have I would have put snakes on it. Yes, that yeah. would be mine. Just because I grew up in Texas and every snake was poisonous. Joanne Brookhuisen wants to leave off truth. Wow. Wait a minute. Wasp. So the re <laughs> reality is these are great. Keep them coming. So the reality is there are That's several animals that we are aware, and this is one of my favorite Far Side cartoons about those who may have been left behind with the dinosaurs. Um, I think it goes without noting. Although we love those warm and fuzzy animals in our world, there are others that aren't as easily as lovable. My question is, why did God choose to preserve them all? even over my own great wisdom of what we should have left behind or the ones we would consider unnecessary in today's world. Uh, a little context about the flood is the great flood was noted in history of the people of Israel. It wasn't a unique, uh, it wasn't a universal flood that flooded the entirety of the world. And scientists prove this. Indeed, if it flooded the entirety of the world, we would not have animals that were indigenous to certain places. But the flood itself is a narrative of the people of Israel, and so it impacted them, and there's all kinds of historical documentation that that did occur. But when we talk about the flood, many times we think of the promises of God, of Creator, through this time. We also think of that cute song that we sang, that animals came on by twosies, twosies. And I would offer that may not be the only premise behind that narrative. 
Because if we think about it, the intentionality of the call during that time for Noah is truly a preservation of all species. That is why there are male and female. It was to keep all animals protected and good. God saw what God has created and good, and God wanted to preserve that. Each species was to be protected and preserved because they all mattered. Now, it's not a surprise, because if we look back in Scripture, there's many illustrations of animals and the relationship with Creator, with God, with divine love, and with those animals. If you go through and look at, in the creation poetry that's existent there, we have the humus. The humus is that very soil that God used to bring forth all of animal life. It's the same soil that God brings forth all of human life. So indeed, that poetry that illustrates creation shows that we share an origin together. All the covenants throughout Scripture, if you think about it, we have Abraham and Sarah and Noah and David, and all of these covenants indeed invite not only a covenant with those individuals, but with their children, with their children's children. And if you look carefully, it's with their animals. They are all included on those covenants. Leviticus. This is a book that, unfortunately, our world today pulls two scripture texts out of context and uses it as a weapon against our LGBTQIA folks, sadly misusing the context. But if you dive into Leviticus, there are hundreds of illustrations, of commands, of how we are to care for the animals that we are responsible for. Everything from giving them days off to what we feed them, to how we interact with them, to giving them rest and how they're treated. Another example of this is the story of Balaam and his ass. I always love this story. You're giggling. <laughs> I, I always love this story. It's the only time we can say ass in church, but it's a donkey. His donkey is mistreated. Balaam is hurting his donkey, and God uses that creature. Am I up again? There we go. I must have hit the, the button. God uses and gives human voice to this donkey to speak against violence and abuse and to speak truth and justice. If you think about the prophets and indeed the peaceable kingdom, what that is is an imagery of all the animals, but it's the predator prey all side by side. This goes against the very concept that we have in our Western world of you have to survive and you have to take care of your own, much less worry about others. That those are the two choices of either die, I mean either, either eat someone else and be consumed or you will die. That's survival of the fittest. And indeed, the peaceable kingdom really does move us out of that to recognize there's a greater power in love. Jesus loved and appreciated all animals, from lambs to, uh, to sparrows. Jesus engaged in all of God's creation. And our forefathers, uh, J.C., who I call, uh, that's John Calvin, and Martin Luther, two men who shaped and formed our Reformed traditions. They truly believe and share that the gospel is always revealing itself through Scripture. But they also believe the gospel is always revealing itself in nature, that we were to constantly be looking to nature to understand the love of God. So as people of faith, we're keenly aware of our environment, of our care of God's creation. But I would offer sometimes we don't always think about and include the creatures in that care. Their voices are not always heard. 
Over the years, our Western culture has adapted many perspectives and, and justifications of our treatment of animals. We have seen their purpose on this planet for many different things and many different purposes, one of which is, goes back to that original talk about dominion. And so if you'll take a moment and look at, I'm looking at my own slide that's surprising me, so um, I don't know what I put on there, but I will, oh, I see, I actually, it's different than what I printed, so this is why I'm, I'm, I'm following with y'all, thank you. Um, so what it is, is the idea about dominion, the power of a, a vowel point. The word rada is used in scripture, and many times it's used two different ways. One way is in relationship to the Israelites. And the Israelites, when they defeated their enemies, they would rada, they would have dominion over, which meant they would use their resources for their own gain and use. And so that idea of we have dominion over, we have resources, and we use this for our benefit is one example of rada. With a different vowel point, there's another whole use of rada. It's used twice in Scripture. One is which it's a relationship of God with humans. And it means to bring forth to their best way in which they were created to be. To bring forth their best capacity. This is the rada that's used in the creation narrative. So if you think about it, how we interact with animals is not that we get to use them for our benefit. It truly is how do we bring forth what they were created to be in their best text and understanding. We have other pieces, and this is, this is a quote I'll leave up there from um, a, a, a rabbi regarding our relationship with them. But while that's up, I'll talk about we have other purposes and senses of their use. Indeed, we, we engage animals in entertainment. We have, for many years, engaged circuses and animal performances, and we've seen that as being so wonderful for us without giving thought behind what happens to those animals to have them performing things that are not natural to who they are? We've learned this and we've made adjustments within our society. We also use this for the health industry. For years we have used animals and they have benefited. I'm not against med medical testing. We actually have found ways in which we could engage and use animals to help us find cures for disease. But our science has advanced so much that that has become a narrowing field. We can do it without them. Sadly, what we continue to do is use animals to test them for our cosmetics. And that, to me, is, is horrific. To think about we have animals that we are engaging to cause suffering and harm to make sure we have the right mascara to wear. And so we still have this part of our culture. We have also our um, money and income. Poaching is one of the highest industries. And indeed, for horns and um, rhino horns and elephants... Our, our industry of uh, poaching, right now, ivory is more valuable than gold. And that is why people are killing near-extinct animals, such as rhinos and elephants, to get their horns, or why they're breaking into zoos to remove their horns. It's also why presidents, such as Obama and President Huru, who is from uh, Kenya, have been burning ivory to ensure that this market is closed down because we're destroying the animal uh, species itself for money. Another is food and nourishment. We do eat uh, animals. Many of us are, are uh, omnivores or we eat many different types of um, uh, food that nourishes us. But we're learning, indeed, ways that animals can be raised 
not in a way that they're forced in a pen and multi, um, produced on a radical basis, but in a way that, that they have a livelihood that brings them forth to their fullest life for consumption. We also have companionship. It's a whole other expansion of this as we are realizing how valuable animals are to our physiological, our, our psychological, our social and emotional well-being. And during times such as COVID, I would offer this is when your animals matter the most. This is those times of being able to recognize they are in our daily lives. And these are places where we may not get to touch one another. We may be isolated from one another, but those animals indeed can be there for us and provide that loving connection that we too need as animals. Our other text this morning is from the, the story of Job. And just a moment about Job. If you think about Job, Job himself had a life beyond challenges. His friends, they weren't so great. Job has lost his entire family, his income, everything that's happened has gone away that Job knows. So he's in this place of calamity, of deep suffering, of deep trauma. Denise Anderson, our former uh, moderator of General Assembly, I appreciate him quoting her. She said, Job had great friends until they opened their mouths. Because his friends started telling them, indeed, you need to have more faith or your God, something is wrong. They started providing doctrinal truths at a time that he was in deep, deep suffering and trauma. And from this place, these are the words and this is the wisdom that comes to Job that I believe is for us all. So I'm reading from Job 12, 7 through 10. But ask the animals of the air, and they ask the animals, and they will teach you, and the birds of the air, and they will tell you. Ask the plants of the earth, and they will teach you, and the fish of the sea will declare to you. Who among all of these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of every human being. This is the invitation that Job receives and challenges us beyond just seeing the animals as commodities as underlings, as here for our use or as inferior creatures that have no hearts or no emotion or intelligence, but truly invites us and those of us willing to consider there's more to their presence on this earth. I want to show you a slide that I think is, is a powerful one, and it's one that we used often. You see the ego to the left. I, I don't know if that's the left or the right of my screen. Okay, good. I'm getting the thumbs up. So the ego to the left. I always love this. This is the hierarchy of importance in society in the animal kingdom. And I love that man is on the top, but do you notice a uh, woman's right there with whales? And although I love whales, I kind of, I have an argument with the fact that this is set up. And it's, it's based on this ideology that says somehow, you know, we are the primary and the highest form in there. If you look at the next one, that's eco. This is the evolution of what we've gone to with our relationship with the animal world. And it shows us interacting with them, but yet in that is no indication of our faith as people of faith and the responsibilities that we've been called to and challenged to. So the third one we add into is Theo. Theo, and if you see this, is the heart of God. And so it indicates that all creatures matter. All of them are a place because God created them and declared they are all good. And yet humans are a part of that. They're not separate or outside. They're not above. But they also are in that crux of the heart in which they themselves hold a responsibility for those that may not 
have a capacity to be able to preserve themselves. With this, and with the words of Job, what happens when we start to consider animals as teachers? What happens when indeed we start to think about and consider that they could teach us something? Our feathered and furred and thin friends, the, the indigenous folks and our Native American sisters and brothers have done this for years. But my invitation to you is to think through today, what can we learn? And it begs the question, particularly in this time and all that we're facing in our world, I believe there's lessons that are profound. One is the survival of the fittest. The survival of the fittest is, I would say at this point, a theory that we bought into, hook, line, and sinker, in our Western world to say, this is the only model that ever exists. So whenever there's a choice, I need to always make sure I'm taking care of myself and my needs to survive, and I will always pounce on the ones that are, like, that are more vulnerable. But indeed, that excludes our understanding of love and the connection of love. With new technology and with ways in which the, we've been able to track animal behavior through videos, through National Geographic uh, research that has gone on, we have learned so much more that the animal kingdom doesn't always, doesn't always work with this theory. In fact, there's many other ways that they engage and interact. Here's a few uh, indicators. These are all research-based of lions that have rescued um, uh, gazelles, of, of cheetahs that are holding on to baboons and monkeys. It's, it's places where they have gathered this re research to note that indeed what would be the instinctual piece is to kill the animal, to survive themselves, that another instinct has taken over, an instinct of love, an instinct of maternal care. I share with you a story of a... Uh, uh, National Geographic actually filmed this, and you can Google it and see it. It's a phenomenal story about a leopard who kills a baboon. And, and as you know, in the wild, animals only eat once a week, sometimes once every two weeks. So when they do kill, they're hungry, they're starving. And so as the leopard flipped over the baboon, what the, he noticed was the baboon had a baby baboon attached to the mother's teat. This leopard, who has taken the time and the energy to kill, and this is its food for the next week or two, actually takes the baby and goes up to higher place with this baby, and they've got this all documented, and tries to keep the baby alive. Through the entire time, you hear other animals come, and still, it's kill. They take it. They, they eat what the, the leopard needed. But that leopard maintains to be there to try to help that baby survive. I can't tell you how many hundreds of stories are like this where the animals are choosing differently. They're choosing love over just survival. Another lesson we can learn is indeed play. Play is an essential nutrient for our well-being. And many times we have this uh, theory within animals that play is a way they learn how to hunt and kill. This actually has been debunked because we have enough rescue centers and zoos now where food is always provided, that that's no longer a question. And the animals, when they are rescued and when they go through rehab, what they teach their children is play. It is essential for their well-being and it's essential for ours. You'll notice a book there, Stuart Brown, who's a psychology professor of the doctoral program at Stanford. He's a good friend of Jane Goodall's. His theory initiated this awareness that indeed we all need play. That little tree house you see, that's where he writes his books from. But the two slides that are on to your left, 
Those indeed are a story of a Canadian dog sledders. They tied their dogs up for the night, and all of a sudden, out of the blue came a polar bear out of hibernation. So the polar bear hasn't eaten for months and is starving. The polar bear starts to charge the dogs. And the two sledders pull away and get their camera, so they just start to take pictures. And what happens is unbelievable, as you can see. The polar bear and the dogs actually play together. They engage, and you see that lower picture, the polar bear's on its back in a very vulnerable position. Now, this took a lot of study by animal behavioralists, because why in the world the polar bear didn't just eat the dogs and to survive? The, the desire for play overrode the desire to survive for food and needed. The polar bear came back every single night that week to engage them. And what they noticed was all the signals and clues that went across species to say, indeed, they could play together. Another is how we process fear. You see, fear is something we all experience in today's world. We are experiencing a lot of fear. And we think we can talk ourselves out of it. In fact, that's what we try to do. And how many of you have ever had someone say, now, just don't be afraid? And it doesn't really work. In fact, it many times will almost amp it up some within us. Uh, the Peter Levine's book, Waking the Tiger, introduced a whole new somatic understanding of fear. That with fear, we, we engage it into our cells, and it has to metabolize through movement to get out. He developed this theory based on the fact of watching animals and behavior in the wild. You think about when an animal is being chased by a predator, there's that moment that we talk about when they play possum, when they actually go into shock and they freeze. Or maybe it's the bird who slams into your window and is, is frozen. This is a state of fear. It's when their ner nervous system has completely shut down. And according to the animal behavioralists, what happens is they observe these animals. When they come out of that state, the very first thing they do is they shake. They move the fear out of their body. This lesson is something that I have been working with with the Hendricks Institute for a long time. And this is the piece of how they've developed fear melters. Because for as much as we talk about this, I, I love Katie uh, Hendricks has often said, you have to move. You have to let your body move this through to let the fear move through versus just talking about it. This has proven over and over to be successful with PTSD and with complex trauma is movement to help move that through. And again, these are lessons we're learning from our animal friends. Also making connections with those who are different than ourselves. In a world that we find division, that we say, you know, let's just be with those that we're like. I love the diversity of the animal world. They invite us over and over to play, to be, to see each other and love each other as we are. So you might be asking a few questions in this time of what can we do. Knowing indeed these are invaluable lessons in our relationship to animals matter. So what I would offer is to be open to learning from them, to keep your hearts open to caring for them, and to keep your eyes open to, to seeing them in your world. But there's other things we can do. We can support agencies that do support protection and conservation of species and of habitats. We can ban trophy hunts. I'm a big fan of getting rid of trophy hunts. There's no reason for them to ever exist. Indeed, we, I hear hunters will justify they feed the animal to a tribe of people or to a village of people. 
And I guarantee if it's a giraffe or an elephant or even a lion, these are animals that are strong and muscular. That, that village would rather have the $40,000 you paid to do the trophy hunt and that will feed them a longer time. If you choose to eat meat, do so wisely. There are, whoops, I skipped over the other piece. There are so many um, ways in which you choose your, the, the consumption of your meats on animals that have been raised in an environment that brings forth their greatest life and being. Uh, Temple Granlin often says, you know, the idea of what we eat, if they're in an environment that's calm and soothing, then what we're taking in is loving care ourselves. Support rescue centers, conservations, nationally, internationally, and locally. Our Kansas City Zoo does a phenomenal job on conservation. Down in Lewisburg, you'll actually have a wonderful small cat rescue center. If you've ever been down there, it's a great place to go visit and support. And during this time, maybe consider before we have our stay at home, if you have and want to foster a, 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 an animal that's in one of our shelters that needs fostering during the season of stay at home. Love the animals in your life. Open your eyes and your heart to the animals around you. Listen from them. Learn from them. Get out in nature. That's my meditative practice each and every day is I really ask what can I learn from whatever animal I meet. It might be a squirrel. It might be a bird. It might be my, my own dog. Friends, we're blessed. We're blessed so much to have these connections with the animals in our world that don't necessarily look like us. This connection with other species, and it expands our compassion for one another, and it gives us the opportunity to bless and to be blessed in our lives. So I would ask if you have a, a loved one that's furried or, friend, or, furried or finned or, or a feathered or any of those above, that you go get them, and also while you're out, get a little olive oil or maybe a glass of water, and then come back to the screen because we're going to do a special blessing of your animals via the internet so you can be a part of this. As Reformed people, we believe that we're all ministers and so we all can serve in this way. I have a volunteer who came with me we, 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 this morning so we can practice on her and show you. Dee, what about, uh, what if you don't have a live animal but you got a stuffed animal? And stuffed animals were great. Okay, Winnie. This is Miss Winnie. Stuffed animals work great. Hey, Winnie. You want to say hi? Yeah, okay. And, okay, you're going to come down here. Come on, come on, girl. There you go, right there. Get your animals, folks, live or fuzzy or your fish, whatever. There's many ways in which to do this. But again, it's not, it's not who does it because you love them the most. And so what a wonderful blessing to give to them. So should I move? Do you think people have gotten their animals? I think they have. Oh. There's a lot of about slugs. Slugs, okay. Well, if you have a slug. and Oh, bring Jack down. We're going to bring down another friend here, too. Here comes Jack. <laughs> Jack's coming. Is yeah. that kind of exciting? I know. It's very exciting. <laughs> we have a couple friends here. We do. Okay, Jack. Now, y'all keep your, your physical distancing, although you're... <laughs> yeah. So, um, friends, let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, creator of all things and giver of all life, let your blessing be upon all these animals. May our relationships with them mirror your love and our care for them be an example of your bountiful mercy. Grant the animals health and peace. Strengthen us to love and care for them as we initiate and imitate 
the love of Jesus Christ through our brother St. Francis and our sister Claire. Amen. So with your animal, it could be with water, it can be with oil, it can be olive oil. Um, I was telling a story when I first was a pastor, I, I practiced baptizing on my golden retriever Murphy for many, many times so that I would get the words right. But you just take a little oil or a little water, here you go, you want to do that? And you just put it in your hand, and I tend to use my thumb. Yeah, Winnie, we've got it right here. Use it then, yeah. Okay. And see, this is the fun of animals. They teach us to be spontaneous, and it can be messy, and it's just how it is. So this is the offering that's up for you to name. So I just make a sign of the cross on their forehead with that oil and say, Winnie, you were created by God, and you were loved by God. May you and your human family experience joy and companionship together and continue to be a blessing to each other. And did you get that for Jack? Here we go. Good. So friends, you can do this for your animals, for your stuffed ones, for your loved ones. Indeed, recognizing that they play a huge part in our lives. And learning from them and seeing from them not only as just companions to us, but indeed as teachers and what we can learn about the love of God. Following worship, Dee joined Paul Rock and Kristen Regal for a conversation on what animals can teach us about life and faith. Dee has always had a deep connection with animals, but it was in 2009 that she was awakened to her true life mission. That year, she received a Lilly Grant to study how animals can teach us about play and about God. As part of her research, she traveled to rescue centers all around the world, from working with lions, elephants, and giraffes in South Africa, to swimming with dolphins in Bimini, to visiting wolf sanctuaries in Colorado, she had a profound experience. Here she discusses the impact that it had on her and her ministry. And my heart and what my friends reflected to me is I came alive. Huh. They said, you know, we've always known you. You're a seven on the Enneagram. You're always enthusiastic. But this was just like you are radiated your essence of connecting people and animals in that place. So since then, I opened up a business called Adventures for the Wild at Heart in which I connect people with animals, whether in the wild or through rescue centers, to, to ask those questions. Um, adventures in the wild for the adventures for the wild at for heart. the wild at heart mm -hmm. and I bet we could put that link on here if we if we could find it yeah so um, to, to take those adventures so I've taken many groups to swim with dolphins in the wild and and people will say and I've had people though pat me on the head and say isn't this cute mm -hmm. and um, isn't this a cute thing that you love animals almost a, a dismissive yeah, way right and I, I I promise you when somebody comes out of the water after connecting with a dolphin and, and these are dolphins who choose to be with you. They're not baited. They're not fed. They actually come, and they're connecting with you. They're communicating with you. People's hearts open. They, they burst open mm. with such joy and awareness that this was a sacred moment. Mm. And they ask the bigger questions mm. about life, about, you know, how is it we can do this with, with one another? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So how has it affected your personal theology as a as a pastor, as a person of faith? It's a great question. Um, I, I, I go back to that reference I made of John Calvin and Martin Luther. I think prior to this, everything was so head-oriented, and what animals do is invite us into our full bodies. Hmm. Um, and so my theology has really moved from it just being, and as Presbyterians, we tend to be very proud of our academic achievements and right. our, our scholastic and intelligence, 
And yet, God created this entire body that informs us and, and provides information for us. And our, our animal companions invite us into that because that is how they live right. all the time. Right. And they also live very much in the present moment, yeah. which I've done um, uh, meditation for years. And that's what that does is bring you into that present moment of here and now. And again, animals live in the present moment. They, they really don't spend time thinking about, you know. Um, that stupid thing they said yesterday. Or... The dog that barked on them on the walk three days ago. <laughs> and why did they say that? Yeah. And I, wanna, I wish yeah. I could say something different or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, but Dee, I would love to hear a little bit about how you have used animals in your ministry then. So I know you've taken people on trips, but have you done anything cool in congregations or is there things that you're hoping to try at some point? I, I have. I've done yeah. a lot. In fact, I get really excited when I do this. So when I did my sabbatical, um, the church, I wanted them to have some of the same experiences I was having. So we took a group down to um, the Wolf, uh, in the Colorado Wolf and Wildlife Center in Divide, Colorado. And there they explain to you about the lives of all the various wolves that they've rescued. But you have the opportunity to actually go into the enclosure with wolves. And so when you talk about fear, and fear is an, an issue within, uh, I would say, Christianity and within our, our biblical circles, because a lot of times we hear that fear not you know, we hear that yep. accusational as opposed to assuring of, oh, you're afraid. So when you talk about fears with people of faith, and for them to face into all the mythology around wolves, I mean, from the three little pigs to the big bad wolf, the Red Riding Hood, and all this, and engage our fears into going into an enclosure with an animal that's actually not, they're not like dogs. Wolves are bigger than we are. Yeah. And they make it real clear when you go in the enclosure, they find who's the alpha of the group, they put their hands, their paws, excuse me, on your shoulders, and they look at you, and they basically say, this is my house. I'm in charge here. So the wolf does that to you? Mm -hmm. Interesting. So the, the alpha of the group that goes in. And the whole time you're, you're, you're safe, the people who work with these animals and know them intimately are safe. I want to say always we are very mindful of the animal's welfare and, and the people's welfare. So we're very intentional to work only with ethical organizations. Because if, if they're not safe or we're not safe, that's a horrible mix. When right. we start thinking wolves are just like puppy dogs. But the, the engagement that people will have, because wolves then will invite people to be in their pack. And, and you know, in, in the different times I've taken people in these groups, uh, there was one person that was just very, uh, I would say a curmudgeon, you know, rule follower. Everything had to be a certain way. And the group actually wondered why this person was going with us. And I, I kind of made a comment, well, we're a community of faith and we're a community of love. And as they sat down, the wolves will come and they're, they're, there's nobody bribing them. They're really coming on their own initiative who started kissing him on the mm. cheeks. And what we saw was all these defenses of who he was just melt. Huh. And all of a sudden we saw him that we had never seen him before. Huh. And so it's these beautiful examples. So churches we've taken to do work with wolves. I've done lots of retreats where we've done equine therapy and engaging people with horses and being able to, to learn how to loop and listen to animals because they do communicate with us. They don't necessarily use the same words we use, but it's paying attention. And we can communicate to them even without our words on how to, to, to speak to that. Um, a lot of, of the work I do with the military as well, I've been, I've been branching out to really work with some of these animal encounters because, again, with PTSD and so many pieces, these are, are, are very beneficial yeah. to have animals work with them and to use them as a way of an unconditional regard that helps people get into a trust relationship.
when I used to see clients in my therapy practice, I used uh, Murphy, my golden retriever, a lot. She would come in. I never used her with conflict because goldens don't really like conflict, so they kind of would get between the two, the couple who were fighting, and it would be like, oh, don't fight. Just, just love me. Just love me. So I would always kind of have a sense if it was going to be something that we were dealing with conflict. But if it was somebody who had been traumatized, having Murphy's presence in the room radically shifted the trust factor. Yeah. And that person would go to places they had not gone with me quicker with uh, that presence of, of that, that loving dog in the room. Um, before we close, I wanted to give uh, the, anyone watching, and as we're, we're going to tape this just so you know, we'll, we'll keep it, we'll keep this um, on the video feed, the Facebook feed, but just even while you've been here as our interim executive presbyter, you have made a trip yourself to Galapagos. Yes. And so I just kind of wanted to hear about that because I don't know if I've heard about that and, and what you learned from that, what that was all about. It was an amazing trip. And went with our um, associate interim executive presbyter, Sherry Fry. We went, and, and the Galapagos is such an unusual place because there's so many animal species. Right. This is where Darwin wrote yeah. his book. And to see sea lions, to swim with sea lions and penguins, to, to engage with... Uh, these animals that have adapted to that location. The fact that there's penguins there is in itself a radical notion. I didn't realize that. I didn't they know there were penguins there. Yeah. So let me just, do you, I don't know a whole lot about Galapagos. Can you, do, do planes fly there? Do you have to go by boat? boat? What do you do to not bring contaminants or seeds that are stuck to your clothes or whatever? What do you, how, how do they preserve that, that island? They're really islands? careful, first of all, how many people they let come in. Okay. And you do have to fly to an island, and then from the island, there's little small boats. There's one huge National Geographic boat, but all the others are small boats that really travel around the various islands that are there. Okay. And they're very clear. You wash every time you get on the boat and off the boat, you're washing your, your shoes. Uh, you're making sure you're not cross-contaminating right. from one island to the next. Okay. Um, and they're, they're actually thinking of cutting down the numbers of people because there's too many that are going. Yeah. But you see, like, um, an example are iguanas. Iguanas that they know came from the mainland. And you know what iguanas look like yeah. and they, they, how they live. Apparently, through a huge flood, many of them came on logs and different ways that they were washed onto some of these islands. Some of them got on islands that have vegetation and they just survived as they could. Others landed on islands that had no vegetation. So these iguanas adapted. They learned how to swim. Huh. And so they are now marine iguanas where they go underwater and they eat like seaweed, the seaweed wow. to do this. You have the same with the tortoises and the, the turtles who some landed on remote places that they had vegetation to, to be able to sustain themselves. Others, the vegetation was high. So if you'll look at Galapagos turtles, some of them have that saddleback in their shell. That's okay. an evolutionary piece that happened. Oh, so for their necks to move. For their necks to go up high to get food. So it's really phenomenal when you consider all these pieces. And it's, it's, a, it's a unique place in itself because of the water temperature and because of all the currents that come together. So dolphins come through here, whales come through here, all kinds of sea life. And it's just, it's really a phenomenal place. But that was, it was, it was delightful to have that engagement. Yeah. The blue-footed boobies, which are those wonderful birds with blue-footed okay. feet, and, and they do a little dance. that they That's their mating piece. And to see these and, and to hear our whole boat cheer <laughs> to watch them, there they are, you know. Um, it, it's just, again, that joy that they express yeah. so naturally. And we, we receive that and celebrate that. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like the, the animals that we share this earth with are 
unencumbered with some of the things that we have learned to uh, busy ourselves with or be anxious about. And so we can kind of learn from them, like when I was watching you talk about play, not just play, but also just kind of enjoyment of life, spontaneity, joy. Um, you know, I think about that every, uh, every time I sit in our, look in our backyard at the, at the birds or the squirrels, or you come home and our dog greets us like it's the first time she's ever seen us and is just thrilled. And just to, to learn from these creatures, uh, their beauty, their spontaneity, kind of their worship, if you want to put it that mm-hmm. way, that can lighten our anxious loads and help us to connect at a real basic level with the true True joy, simple joys of life. Yes, yeah, very much so. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. And I hope that both you and Winnie and everyone else in your household does well over the next couple of weeks. But it was wonderful. And for everyone who's still watching, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, again, we have a number of things coming up this week online, and we hope you'll be able to connect with us there. Uh, but if not, we will have worship again next Sunday at 9.45, and then we'll, we'll be doing the after conversation. So we hope to see you then. Have a great week, and we'll be in touch soon. Peace. Bye. Bye.